to be very honest, I have never really been interested in Bitcoin, um, other than the fact that it sounded like a great way to make a fast buck. But talking to Avon Yap on this podcast um, and understanding the underlying technologies of Bitcoin, which is the blockchain, and the way he explains it, uh, and also given his own social science and humanitarian backgrounds and how he explains of how this technology could be applied to many other aspects of our lives uh, to actually create social good. Um, I found it fascinating. I also found his story fascinating. So on this podcast, you'll learn a bit about blockchain. Hopefully you'll know a bit more, but also you'll understand more about how it could be used for good. And also there's some interesting stories of Evan Yap. Enjoy. start recording <coughs> clear the voice okay beautiful uh <laughs> times tables in the background i used to have those as well <laughs> i'm trying to teach well uh, my, my daughter yeah she's slowly getting her head around it sometime That's soon <laughs> so she is six years old she's oh. uh, yeah she's so uh, she's she enjoys her mathematics, she enjoys her reading more and her dancing, but she's she's got a, an analytical brain there somewhere as well, which is good. Um, so I'm trying to go for the all-rounder here. That's great. Cool. All right, ready? Yes, let's go. Boom. Okay, so this is another episode of the Happy Startup Community Podcast. Now, today I have a guest who I met actually last year, of all, in all, of all places, Egypt, in the middle of the desert, actually on the coast, but it felt like in the middle of the desert. Um, his name is Evan Yap. Uh, at the time, he was working for a startup, and we had a really fascinating conversation over dinner about how he was using, or this startup was using, or had ideas around using blockchain for using in in the realm of electronic ids I, i'm really butchering this whole topic but i'll get evan to talk about it a bit more and um and the thing that really fascinated me about evan is he was very articulate he understood the technology and he had a very strong appreciation of like technology for technology's sake isn't the thing and we're going to go into this a bit more, which I hope uh, is going to help you as a listener about thinking about your idea, your business around thinking also about the end user, the customer. And Evan's going to hopefully elaborate on that. But first, I'm going to get Evan to introduce himself. Uh, he's been on a really fascinating journey. Uh, and I'm going to leave it over to you, Evan. Where, how, what? <laughs> Uh, first of all, thank you, Carlos. It's been uh, it's an immense pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, yeah, so my name is Evan Yap, and I've been heavily invested in blockchain technology since approximately the end of 2013, when a good friend of mine just came in, kept into coming to my room and saying, "Read the white paper," and he just put the Ethereum white paper on my desk. I'm like, "No, I've got better things to do. Leave me alone." And like after months of bugging me, he would come in, come in, come in, and I just had to read it. Uh, and through that, I kind of started learning about the technology and what it was going to revolutionize truly. So um, what was this paper again? 
it's the Ethereum white paper. So it's okay. uh, basically um, a white paper is a paper that explains the technology and what it will do for customers and how it can be implemented. And mostly in blockchain technology, you would have a wiper to illustrate kind of the um, both technological, financial, and social value in most cases, at least, uh, of what the technology can do. Um, and also, they would normally have a GitHub where they would post their um, their 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 the, the code is to showcase like we've been adding this implementation to the system or we're adding that and um, it's kind of a community and um, it's very open source uh, most of them at least um, and that creates a very interesting interaction between the stakeholders which are both people within let's say the ethereum and but also people from outside um, but mostly what was interesting to me is what it could do because the first thing that we all saw was obviously bitcoin um, and the first thing we saw was a rise in prices and everybody was looking at how can I also kind of get a slice of the pie. Mm. Um, and that was very interesting for consumers. But for me, um, I was far more interested in what this technological revolution would mean for the way we handle data and how we could be responsible about data management. Um, and I joined Taiken in 2017. Um, but that was actually before... Um, everything started. So Taiken was nothing other than a Google Drive and a really good idea by the time I joined. Um, and it was really beautiful to see the company growing. But I think we'll get to that in a bit. Um, so, but to, just to give an introduction of who I am and what I do is I've done uh, political sciences and um, I have been really heavily invested into social sciences and in kind of civic technologies. Um, and through that, I joined Humanity X. And Humanity X is one of the most prominent thinking tanks of uh, humanitarian innovation in the world, and it's based in The Hague. And through that, I started to really appreciate um, more frugal technologies or implementation technologies on a very low level to see how we can generate value for the people directly on the ground, and primarily in humanitarian use cases where people aren't able to help themselves are we trying to find solutions so we can add value to them and for example by uh, giving them a voucher they can't lose so they can give food to their families or um, be identified more easily so they can gain access to water or gain access to shelter and these things truly caught my attention because these are things we can really easily innovate on and um, but it's just not really happening because it's not hot and happening in the sense of uh, for investment, it's not as interesting because there's not a quicker return on investment as it would be in commercial products and so forth. So that is uh, why my, that's my angle within the blockchain space. Mm. So there was the, there's, for you, there's very much a, a social aspect to the work that you do. There's a need for uh, giving some kind of positive uh, impact to communities and people and using seeing how technology can do that. And then you saw there was an interest that attracted you to Tycon. So to, to be clear, I think with the founder, one of the founders is your, your friend uh, that you, how did you get to know the, how did, how did you, basically, how was that relation? Uh, yeah. So that's interesting, actually. Um, well, that's, that's sorry, clearly they're all three, all three founders are great friends of mine and I'd love them dearly. Um, but the, basically how this started is I was already working with Humanity X uh, and doing some workshops and actually helping some, some project management for, for something for the AIDS fund as well. Um, but I was the only one shouting blockchain through the corridors. Uh, mm -hmm. And everybody was like, yeah, 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 you and your blockchain, whatever. Um, and at some point, Fairphone uh, came to Humanity X and asked them to get a workshop done so they could pull in experts to get an idea of how they could make the supply chain of Fairphone 
fair, right? Because it's quite hard to, specifically with minerals coming out of Africa, it's hard to find. And for those of people who don't know who Fairphone is, what's Fairphone? Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, sorry, let me elaborate. Um, so Fairphone is a company that's trying to build a fair phone because most of the minerals that come that are in phones like gold, tungsten, cobalt, and so forth come out of what we call blood mines. And these people are treated very badly. It's basically, um, in most cases, it's a, it's a, it's a new way of slavery um, mm. because it's people are heavily underpaid. The, the working conditions are really, really bad. Um, but the problem is, is that it's a process for, of, 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 how to put this, it's a supply chain, right? So it's, mm. it's the same thing like electricity is that you can only influence what goes in, but you cannot change the entire system and say, we will only do, for example, because you get it out of the mine and it goes to a refinery, from a refinery goes to a, a chip set of it. All that is one supply chain, but you cannot basically manage the entire flow. So you can say out of the 100% that's being delivered, 10% is fair. And that's mm. the 10% that we are going to help uh, cultivate and grow into a larger market share. Um, but Fairphone is trying to make sure that they can showcase to their customers the things that we have are actually fair. And we are supporting the fair uh, mining of these minerals in Africa or in other places. Mm -hmm. And also through the refinery by creating, for example, incentives for refiners to take more uh, fair minerals rather over, over unfair minerals and that way kind of changing the game. Um, but the problem obviously is that it's, it's in mostly in low tech environments. So it's very hard to verify, um, whether this is fair or not. I mean, it could be just a stamp and it mm. could not be true. So it's very hard to manage that. Um, and through that, they basically came to humanity X to say, how do we do this? Could you arrange a workshop? Um, and during this workshop, actually two of the founders, Khalid and Tay, were invited as blockchain experts. Uh, and I was one of the ones leading the, the workshop. So I, in the end, I stayed out talking to them and they gave me some financial advice about what cryptos to buy and so forth. And we <laughs> really got it off and it was fun. Um, but we never actually talked to each other afterwards. Only uh, like a month and a half later, um, I was at the summer school of the University of Leiden, which was a summer school for uh, humanitarian innovators. So there were people from IMF, from uh, UNDP, and from, from all over the world. Um, and there was this one girl who was particularly interested in blockchain and she was actually going to interview Tay. Tay being the founder, uh, to give a little bit of information about Tay, Tay is basically the problem owner of, and the whole reason why we started, we started Tykin in the end is that um, Tay is what we call an invisible man, which basically mm -hmm. means that uh, when he was in Kuwait, he was born in Kuwait to Syrian parents, which means you're Syrian. Um, but he had to flee in the Gulf War and his the civil registry was destroyed. And the problem with that is that once that civil registry is destroyed and with that, uh, your documentation of birth, um, you well, won't exist. Hmm. And you will never have a documentation for the rest of your life because you can't get it back. So that makes you invisible to the social system. And when he got to the Netherlands, he was put into a refugee camp even after he was living here for quite a while as a skilled laborer. Uh, but, but simply because they could not call the registry in uh, Kuwait, like, does this person exist? And this was at the height of the refugee influx into Europe. So th the municipality, the Hague was quite afraid, like, who's this person? He's been living here for years. Technically, we don't know who he is, and we can't really verify who he is. So from one day to another, he was living into a refugee camp in the Netherlands um, for wow. two years. And he realized one very simple truth, because before he was put into a refugee camp, he was actually a Bitcoin miner. So he had some Bitcoin stacked and he was one of the, actually one of the first um, moderators of Bitcoin.com. 
And he realized one very simple truth. Like you can freeze my bank account. You can make sure I can't leave this place, but I still have access to the, ex to like the economic ecosystem because well, Bitcoins are mine. And, oh one of the, and one of the first companies to actually accept Bitcoin as a payment in the Netherlands at least was like the Dutch version of Uber Eats. <laughs> and this is very funny because um, if you're in a refugee camp, you get food whenever people give you food. But outside of that, there's no real kind of fridge you can walk and say, I'm hungry, I'll grab something. And he was really done with eating the same thing day in, day out. And he realized, wait, I can buy my own food. So he just started ordering pizzas and hamburgers. And then these, these people are like, where is this food coming from? Who's paying for this? And he just started like giving food to people. Um, and then he realized, wait, but if I can break through the financial barrier using a technology like simple as this, can I break through the social barrier using the same tech? Because he was in a refugee camp with people where people lost everything. There were people mm -hmm. who were doctors, who were nurses, who were lawyers, who were, but like also just laborers. And there were a lot of good people there who couldn't do anything simply because they couldn't be verified because they left all their documentation back home or they, they lost it somewhere along the road. Civil registries were destroyed. So these people basically stood there without anything to show for it because they couldn't be authenticated uh, because they couldn't showcase who they were. And this all ties back into why identity is such an like intricate and a complex component of our lives is because people think um, basically that our citizenship is often used as the same thing as identity, but it's so much more because it's your academic records, it's your medical records, it's even like your, your music preference or your political preferences. All these things are basically aggregated into what makes you you. Um, and none of this is something you could show. So he realized like, People here have lost everything. If only we had a system which would record things and no matter what happened, mm. we could always have access to our information and show that we are who we are. And I think that is one of the main things why when he started pitching this to me, I fell in love with the concept. I was like, yeah, I truly understand this. Because if you look yeah. at nowadays, like um, if you look at, at, at all the data breaches, like Equifax, if it, Facebook with Cambridge Analytica, what you see is that because of the fact there is a central database where all this information is aggregated and, and basically siloed, I mean, it's hard to get in, but once you're in, you have everything. And I think that's one of the main issues that we're seeing right now is that it's people are trying to decentralize and it's all these buzzwords. Um, but it's in the end, it's all about basically, in my opinion at least, data agency in the sense that you can manage your own information whenever you feel that you could, but mm -hmm. it also everything flows with your consent. So nobody's using or reading into your information without you knowing that. Wow. And hereby we, well, I mean, at Taiken, we were trying to flip the governance system of ID system management. And I think that's one of the key elements of how I joined Taiken from kind of a workshop into uh, becoming their head of research. That's great. And, and uh, I love that it tied to your own values and what you thought was important. And you saw this technology and you saw that, ah, there was and that story just made it so visceral and understandable why this technology could is important and then uh, so you you joined Tycon you you started working with them and and it all started to grow and things started to happen and then your role started to evolve yes well uh to be honest my role um has been quite unclear from the start because i'm more or less a little bit of a jack of all trades so I could do project management on one side, I could do client interaction, I could do uh, workshops, I could do education, simply because I've been, I'm not 
a technologist per se, so I'm not a programmer, so I don't code. Um, but on the other hand, I am not like a pure social scientist either, because I do really, in, I'm interested in how civil society works, how, for example, um, the interaction between, let's say, government bodies and, 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 and people work. Um, but primarily what I'm interested in is how can we create a technology which truly delivers value? And I've always been trying to safeguard the humanitarian values because from my, not just from my background, but also from way back, like both my parents are ex-UN. Um, so I grew up in a very kind of humanitarian environment and mm-hmm. very much about, um, let me put it this way. So my, my father always, since I was little, always told me the one thing you need to learn is to understand what makes people tick. And what, why is it that people tick the way they do? Um, and that kind of stuck by me because it's the same thing that we look at technology. Like I can give you this great piece of technology and tell you how it works, but it doesn't mean you will use it the way, first of all, the way it was intended. And it doesn't mean you will feel the same thing I am feeling. So how do I make sure that whatever I give you will give you the same sensation of accomplishment as it did with me? Mm. And I think that's one of the main things you're seeing right now with blockchain is that, first of all, like, user interaction like just usability of the technology is incredibly incredibly difficult if you don't know what you're doing because there's all these it's it's very complicated because everything is all of a sudden your responsibility and this is where it becomes tough because normally you would have a bank who would manage them something would go wrong you call the bank like hey um, i don't know what happened something went wrong could you help me and they're like yeah we'll look into your system please could you verify the following details and so forth uh, but now all of a sudden there's nobody you can call. Like you can't call an exchange and say, Hey, my money's gone. And they're like, yeah, well, that was your responsibility. So these things make it quite, it's very difficult for people because it's, I mean, I understand people are fearful of, of, of having it becoming their responsibility all of a sudden, especially if you don't are as technologically, let's say. Uh, knowledgeable. So, yeah. Knowledgeable. Yeah. And so this is in the case of using Bitcoin or some kind of cryptocurrency in this, it sounds like on one hand, it creates a lot of freedom, but again, with that freedom comes a certain level of responsibility and knowledge that you need to be able to take advantage of it. Yeah. Well, that was actually particularly the interesting part within Tycon, and this is the one thing that I was heavily focused on, is that what was difficult within Tycon is that your customers aren't necessarily the people you're creating the technology for. And this is where it became quite difficult in, in from an ethical point of view and also from a business point of view where things became, how to put this, um, things would have friction, right? So it would mm-hmm. cause friction because in the one end, your, our customers would never necessarily be the beneficiaries because yeah. the whole idea is we cannot allow the beneficiaries to pay for things because that, well, those are the ones we're trying to help. But on the other hand, we're trying to help the NGOs help the beneficiaries. So it's so more of a, the, the user or the beneficiaries with the refugees or the people whose identity you were, they were trying to, to, to take control of, or, and, uh, but the people who were going to pay for it were not those people. These were the exactly. organizations who were trying to manage these people or help exactly. these people. Exactly. Okay. This is, this is the part where it became more or less complicated for, to understand how do you deliver value on both the level of the NGO or the governmental body or wherever that was, um, whilst also ensuring that you're delivering value on the individual level because the showcasing was heavily done on the individual level. But we, like, to, to put it this way, my vision on blockchain is that it's not necessarily a, a technology on, by itself. 
because mm -hmm. it's, a it's a tool like any other technology, but it does mean you rely, you rely on a certain social infrastructure and understanding that allows you to use these tools effectively and also being able to create it at scale at some point. Um, but what you see with specifically with the humanitarian environment is because people in such environments don't necessarily do the most rational things. Mm. For example, I mean, you could give somebody a phone with a SIM card and say, hey, I will donate money to this phone uh, every month so you can buy food. But people might, you know, take the phone, go to a pawn shop, sell the phone and have food because yeah. that's what they are accustomed to. And then your system doesn't work because the person sold the phone. So it's, that's where it becomes more or less complicated. Um, so there's, um, I think the interesting thing here is uh, everyone, a lot of people I know, when they think blockchain, they just think currencies. And in this case, the technology was actually using this underlying technology that's called blockchain, which a lot of people still don't understand, um, in a way that is using its essence, which is this idea of its, its um, well, I'm going to, again, butcher this, uh, this ability to uh, verify uh, in a distributed way where it isn't just one certain one organization or one gatekeeper to the information there's a there's a way for all of for this information to be verified by multiple sources so that in the case of identification and i think the story that you told earlier was so clear when the source or the the gatekeeper of the information suddenly disappears or that source information disappears it the data isn't lost so your identity isn't lost exactly. and so that was the uh an application that, that that some people wouldn't really perceive that blockchain could be um, applied to. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but then there's other people, it feels like within, within the blockchain world that are trying to just develop the technology and then looking for ways to apply it mm -hmm. and saying, just look at this amazing piece of technology. And you were saying earlier, actually, and I don't think it's just people in the blockchain world, as I think people in the tech world full stop, and I would say broadly people in the business world as well, is they forget that the value comes from solving problems. Agreed. Is that what you were saying before? No, that's absolutely true. Uh, and I think that particularly, I mean, I can't really speak for any other industries, particularly because I'm not, not as knowledgeable at other industries as I am about the blockchain industry. Um, but I think what really made the case of blockchain uh, as an industry unique is the immense growth it had. It was like, I mean, everybody compared it to the dot-com bubble, um, but even to the tulips in the Netherlands, actually. Hmm. Uh, um, but the interesting thing is that, it, I mean, up to this point, uh, if you hear, for example, the Dutch parliament talk about blockchain, they use blockchain and Bitcoin interchangeably. And also they say that whatever the values are that Bitcoin represents are equal to the blockchain values, which is not true because to be very honest, um, Bitcoin is not per se, in my opinion, the best blockchain out there, but it's the first mover. And second of all, um, what makes Bitcoin, let's say really great is that it's the oldest one, meaning it has the most track record, but it has in that sense as a technology, it's, it's so big that it can't fail. I mean, I'm not saying it won't because mm. please don't, don't pin me on this. Um, <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that what makes Bitcoin unique is that it was kind of already coming 
that way. Because if you look at Digicash, which is 1989, in my opinion, I think 1989 or 1988 by David Chum, uh, or eGold, or there's all these other kind of before before Bitcoin came in, these were already existing, but we never really took them as something. Well, these are alternative currencies, digital exactly. currencies. But if you look at how Bitcoin is used, Bitcoin was supposed to be a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. But it never really, it was only that for a short amount of time. Because the problem was Bitcoin scaled up to become a speculative asset instead of a, mm. a currency. Which is why it's interesting we call these things cryptocurrencies when there's basically none of them are actually used as a currency. Rather, crypto, you know, speculative assets would be a better name. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing about these cryptocurrencies is that not all of them are actually currencies. I mean, mm. if you look at Ripple, Ripple's not a currency. Ethereum could be used as a currency, but it's not per se a currency. Um, and I think this is what makes it very interesting and also difficult for people to understand the technology is that it's more or less about data management and database management and the flow of data and how we are basically able to distribute information whilst making sure it's not going to be changed. And then mm -hmm. whatever we put out there is the thing people will read because we can validate that what the author put there is the same thing that you're reading. So that's mm -hmm. the whole concept of hashing, right? So we can make sure that if I place this here and this image and I send you this image, that's exactly the image that you will see because you can check with a timestamp that these two images are the same. So the two aspects it feels like, or the two um, features of this is to be able to spread information easily and quickly, but for it to be authenticated in a, in a way that you can trust it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in, within Token, we would always use uh, iBond, which is the, the, like the basic concept of blockchain, which is immutability, it's borderless, it's open, it's neutral, and it's decentralized. Okay. Uh, and these, we would use these five things because immutability comes from the fact that it's a blockchain. So every transaction of blocks of transaction is tied to the next one and generates an input for the next block. So okay. whenever you kind of change one of the points of information in the block, it will immediately affect everything else. Mm -hmm. You really can't tamper with it because everything will change. And also because it works around the concept of consensus. So mm -hmm. we all have to agree on what the ledger says because it's like a Google Docs. We have a Google Docs with a ledger there. And same thing with Google Docs, you can see who changed it. Yeah. So you can see, for example, Evan changed his, um, his value of Bitcoins from one to two. And if everybody agrees with that, that's the new truth. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, it's my truth against the rest of the world. And that will never, I will never win that, obviously. So there's a, there's a transaction history that can't be tampered with coupled with uh this consensus this ability that you need if if a change is made everyone needs to agree with that change for it to be the the new norm or the accepted new state of this whether this bit information so i'm going to try and throw out a very simplistic um uh example if we were using blockchain to track my educational uh certificates Mm -hmm. I could then say, ah, I now have a, uh, a qualification in this language. Yes. And I could add that to my record and then I would need verification. So firstly, it would be tracked that the record has been changed and by whom. Mm -hmm. And then it would be verified by the relevant people to then say, okay, that's, that's a legitimate change and that makes sense. And so anyone else who sees that will trust it 
and they won't have any doubt about whether I have had that qualification. Uh, it's actually funny that you bring this up because this is actually one of the projects I'm working on. Uh, I can't say too okay. much about it yet, but uh, I will come back with an announcement once it's kind of more developed. <laughs> nice. um, but yeah, uh, what makes this concept so interesting is the fact that um, academic certificates are, one, in my opinion, one of the most valuable components of your identity because it allows you to execute certain you know, tasks and skills. Mm -hmm. um, and also is that what makes this interesting is that it's very hard to take, let's say, a diploma from one university to another and because they need to check the accreditation, how much is it worth, do we accept this university? Um, because it's hard to transfer from one university to another because of the fact they need to verify whether they trust you know, your diploma, first of all, whether they trust the other university, um, how does your accreditation swap work, what, what courses can you take with, what course can you not take with? Mm -hmm. um, but through a system like this, you could basically go to another university, enroll through your digital identity and say, hey, mm. I would like to enroll for, let's say, a PhD program or a master's program or something else. And they say, okay, fine. Um, we would like to access your academic records. Basically, it's, you have a vault, a digital vault, and within it, you have all these special rooms. One room is yeah. for your certificates, the other is for your financial account, for the medical, and so forth. And they say, we would like to have temporary access or validate uh, the information within this um, yeah. and then you would give them consent on let's say point a b c d e f and g to mm. check that um, but there's another interesting element to that because there's something we call zero knowledge proofs i'm not sure whether it will be as much applicable for academic certificates but it's an interesting way of looking at it um, so zero knowledge proofs basically mean that you are able to validate information without truly exchanging it Mm. And to explain this is through basically going to a liquor store. So this happens to me because I have no beard. So I have been <laughs> for, for for ten years basically. Um, so if I go I to a liquor store, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I go to a liquor store and then uh, I try to buy I don't know a bottle of whiskey or first word. And um, they say, okay, could I check your ID if you're actually below or above eighteen? When I do that normally, like right now, I give them my ID card, but on my ID card is so much information they don't need to know. First of all, mm -hmm. they don't need to know my date of birth. They just need to know, am I above, above or below 18? They mm -hmm. don't need your full name and all the other stuff. So they just need one thing, but we give them so much more. And it's, it's basically something we trust, so it's fine for us. But yeah. in the future, this could become truly, really problematic. Mm -hmm. um, so zero knowledge proof basically allows you to go to a liquor store uh, this is very simplistic, by the way. Um, let's say you have a card, you tap it, you have a pin card. This person will see a picture of you and a, a cross mm -hmm. or a check. And mm. if it's a check, you're above, uh, above 18. If it's a cross, you're below 18. Yeah. And that's all you need to know. And this is what Zero Knowledge Proof does is it allows you to verify the age. And actually, Civic has done an example of this already. Uh, only problem was that it took 20 minutes to verify. So it really, you needed to wait 20 minutes to get a beer. Um, but other than that, it's a really great system. Um, <laughs> the, the zero knowledge bit is there's no need to exchange any data. No. And the proof is just that you can trust that this thing has told you the right, re the right answer. Yes, exactly. they are over 18. No, they're not uh, over 18. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, so this, again, I think my intention with this podcast was to open up people's ideas of what blockchain means and how it can be used and how it could be applied. Now, um, another aspect of this conversation is also your own personal journey of understanding where you 
want to fit and do work and we've I've heard about you know your needs for creating more I, and maybe get correct me if I'm wrong social justice positive social impact seeing how technology can be used to do that the very your humanitarian history and and uh, origins so how has that shaped now your current journey and where you're at and 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 yeah the the direction you want to go well so as I said, like um, before, before, uh, before Tykin and all that, I was already working within kind of going towards humanitarian innovation and particularly tech. And I had blockchain, which was my hobby. I was just being this evangelist. It was screaming at everybody. Oh, look at the, look at this, look at this. And then at some point when Tykin came in, I really got myself immersed and everything aligned for me because I had both, you know, tech and blockchain and I had humanitarian innovation that kind of became one. Mm. Uh, but when, when I got more into the tech and really became immersed into the industry, I started to realize I'm not your typical evangelist. Actually, I'm not an evangelist. I'm more of a cynical person who would rather look at where you should not implement and where you should be careful implementing rather than just you know implementing it for, for tech's sake and seeing whatever happens. Um, so that can really, really shaped where I want to go right now. Mm. Um, just being more on showing people and you know um this is what it can do mm. and i don't want to tell people this is what you should do i would rather give you information saying look um these are all different possibilities what is it you're trying to solve so the first conversation you have with people whether it's a workshop whether it's a consultancy thing or whether it's academia even like I, i've lectured at university um and when i go to talk to the students at some point they say like okay so I do this rabbit prototyping workshop with them, which is trying to you know, develop this business case and product really quickly based on the things that I would tell them what blockchain could do. And the interesting thing is even then, even students, for example, would immediately start saying, yeah, 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 I'm going to, uh, I'm going to build a technology that's going to do the following. And then mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, but that's really great. But who is this for? And what problem are you truly solving? And then it's like, they kind of, it's, it's like backwards induction right so they start going they start from the solution and they move their way back to a problem they think it's going to solve <laughs> but we're not gonna but people don't really like me because i keep delving back to the problem side of things rather than to the solution side of things so i'll be poking them like hey how does your how does your problem evolve why how will your problem actually be solved with this tech um so right now i'm i'm running uh, two publications um, one at the University of Groningen uh, and one I'm writing with a dear friend in Australia. Uh, and I'm going to be doing more of more articles and really more kind of easy to read blockchain for, 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 for social good. Mm. Um, also going to be speaking at a panel in Geneva at the International Telecommunications Union, which is doing uh, a collaborative uh, event called the WSIS conference in Geneva with the UN um, UN commissions uh, like UNDP uh, and so forth about blockchain for refugees and blockchain for social good in particular, because mm. one of the main things that I'm seeing, which is kind of painful to see right now is that since the crash in 2017, like, you know, after 17 and 2018, uh, it had a great peak. Um, the market cap went up to 880 billion and within six months, I think we're at approximately we're now at 134 billion. Whoa. So it Boom. divided by seven or six, the entire market. And one of the painful things to see is that before this happened, before this whole crash happened, there was more and more money made, uh, basically invested into social uh, aspects of blockchain. But mm -hmm. when the market really crashed, 
investors would really have to, you know, be more careful about their investments and look at where do I really get my return on investment. Mm. Um, And this is actually quite unfair and difficult for social good companies, which I really understand, which is probably most of your listeners are Mm. struggling with the same thing when, when, when investors are really looking at their ROI, uh, you can't really easily compete with pure commercial companies Mm. simply because of the fact that, I mean, there is something impeding you from going that way and maximizing your profit. Um, but interestingly enough, for example, the Netherlands, in Parliament right now, there's a discussion about creating two different taxation systems uh, within the entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem, one specifically for, you know, very commercialized companies, and mm-hmm. the other one particularly for social good companies. And I think this movement, like this, this is opening a window of opportunity for companies such as Taiken and mm-hmm. other companies which are working within blockchain for good, where they're able to finally commercially compete with other companies simply because of the fact that they're going to be able to focus more on the social side of things mm. whilst, whilst maintaining a good, you know, market position. Yeah. Because that's, that's the hard balance to keep. That is the, that balancing the money and the meaning, the purpose exactly. and the profit. And what's fascinating to me is, um, why I understood with this idea with the legislation in, in the Netherlands, is broadening out what a successful business means. And it isn't purely based on profit and revenue, but also on positive impacts to the community you're, you're working for or you're working yeah. in. So, sorry, like, it's, 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 it's the, the social good is hard to kind of bring forward uh, from the start. I mean, in my opinion, at least, mm-hmm. is because if you start with a social mission, like, for example, the story of Tay, I would tell the story of Tate to people and everybody would be like, wow, this is really interesting. And it's really good that you're doing this. But once you really start pushing investors like, hey, um, we would really like to, to, for you to invest or we'd really like for you to kind of be part of this, mm-hmm. people would be more tiptoeing around you. And that's yeah. what I really saw. Okay. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, to maintain your, your strategy the way you want it to. Mm. I'm not sure if this is answering your question, please. Uh, no, I think it's, it is that tricky challenge is like when you are in a system that, uh, or essentially you're going to people who measure the return on investment purely based on the monetary gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no matter how good your story is and how uh, positive it is, if that's the benchmark that they're measuring success against or they're being measured against, for instance, and you are uh, you're you're, a, you're just a ma- fund manager or someone, or you're managing someone else's fund, then then it's going to be a challenge. And so it sounds like there there needs to be some other way to incentivize uh, or even just manage the way people think about what it means to create businesses that that, that are going to benefit us in the long term. Let's put it that way. I agree. But Rather is- than the short term profit. Yeah, this is actually one of the interesting things about, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain kind of working together because mm-hmm. like what, what this technology for one of the first times I think in, in history truly allows is to create your own monetization system uh, in a way that you are able to use cryptocurrencies to fund yourself, right? What you, see, yeah. you saw, I mean, all ICOs were coming out of everywhere. There were ICOs for everything. I mean, you, you, you know the Lipton, you know the Lipton story, right? No. There's this company, it's not Lipton IC, I think. It's this other Lipton company 
who are crashing as a regular company, nothing to do with blockchain. Um, and they, they literally put blockchain into their name. And I think their stock value went up 200% in two weeks. <laughs> and like, it's these things, like it's these things. It's, it's, it's very opportunist. hard. Yeah. But it's like, it's very hard to like show to people that there is a story beyond the hype. Yeah. Because it was such a big hype and it was such a big, like, I'm not, I would not necessarily say a bubble, but like, it's very much a hype and it's a lot of buzzwords. It all really sounds cool. But if you look at who are really achieving the most in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, application of the tech, it's, it's up and coming because to be honest, this technology is still in its infancy and it's going to take years and years and years of not just technologists or programmers, but like, uh, governmental bodies, uh, institutions, NGOs, semi-public institutions. Um, it's about the alignment of stakeholders and truly giving them the knowledge to know what they're dealing with. And this is for me why I'm moving towards that direction because mm-hmm. I think it's really important to inform the people what is possible because what you're seeing a lot is you have like two camps, right? You have the evangelist screaming that it's perfect and it's going to solve all your all, all of your problems. And the other hand, you have the cynicists they are like, but it's it's it's, it's going to it's a fad. It's going to go away. It's going to be. It's going to. It's it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, but I think to kind of harmonize that. I mean, there will always be those two camps, right? But to harmonize it more and more, it's about just showing that blockchain isn't this very complex big thing. It's basically something that a lot of people will be using in the future, in my opinion, but not even knowing it. Yeah. Like for example, having a payment system for your car to park, you go to, you park your car, your car has a wallet. Uh, it, it, it kind of connects with a pole somewhere that realizes your car is parked in a certain area. It will pay. It will start when your car stops because the engine goes off. You go mm-hmm. to your things, you come back and you just drive off and your car pays the parking ticket. Mm. Um, and I think these are the things where blockchain will really kind of shine. Um, simply because you won't even know you're using it as goes with a lot of technologies yeah well that's it i think that's the well in my case i find technology you know technology is working when when no one notices it and the trouble is when when it doesn't work that's when everyone really just lays into it (laughs) i find that when i do a tech support with my wife (laughs) everything's good yeah my laptop's great and then as soon as anything goes wrong this technology is rubbish why do I have this? I need a new one. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. But um, I think, and for me, the thing that, that's coming out as well is this, this um, you have a very, uh, the, your need is to change the system. And I think you have, uh, you've tie, through education, through your ability to understand how these things work and communicate how these things work and to educate and to empower people through that knowledge to actually do the right thing with this technology. I think this is your intention. Then this is the, the role or the, the, the direction that you're now finding yourself in. And through this journey of being in a you know, commercial company, uh, seeing what that means in terms of actually the balance between the social good, the, the beneficiary and the, the customer, the money and, and what it is you want to try and do. You now found actually where you want to be is advising how these companies should be working and getting them to understand how to apply their technology in the right, not necessarily only in the right way to solve the right problems. And exactly. The way that fixes things. And also maybe like starting at the right starting point, like starting at, 
understanding the problem and really doing the user journeys and really yeah. going through the the first part of it rather than just going through like uh, getting an Ethereum programmer who has lived experience and say, I want a smart contract that will solve this issue. Yeah. And it builds it for you and then completely unbeknownst to you, it, it suddenly doesn't work or it doesn't really work. Well, no one, no one wants it. <laughs> exactly. Nobody wants it because people don't know what you're doing. And like, why do I have a user system which is even more complex than the one before, which I don't understand and you have to retrain half of the staff. Like that doesn't either work as well. Uh, and I think that's the thing. It's like life is too short to build things people don't want. So yes, it feels like that's the problem you're going to solve. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hope so, at least. I hope so. And I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Who are like like-minded with like like that, and who are really trying to figure out what they can solve for people directly. Um, so if there are any listeners out there who are interested in connecting with me, please uh, please do. Well, I will definitely share your details. Well, thank you very much. That's super fascinating, super interesting, super deep. We got quite deep and with some ideas and knowledge around that, but also thank you for sharing your story as well as how so, you've basically traveled this, this world of blockchain and, uh, and humanitarianism. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Carla. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to this Happy Startup School community podcast. If you want to find out more about what we do, then check out our website, www.thehappystartupschool.com. You'll find out more about our community, the courses that we offer, and also the conversations and content that we're trying to create to help you get clear about how to build a purposeful business without burning out. So if you're trying to balance the money and the meaning Try the impact and avoiding imposter syndrome. Then join us and our group and tribe of like-minded, caring, compassionate and flawed entrepreneurs on this journey trying to work out how to make money, do good and be happy.